นโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามะสังอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่าอ่า
And we, we tend to go around in circles. You know, could do this, could do that, and I've never been in this situation before, I don't know what to do. So what I would like to uh, suggest this evening and raise for us all to consider is the value of not thinking. And we're all, as I said, we're all taught to think. We're super thinkers. We're mega thinkers, uber thinkers. You know, we just, you know, they, they worship thinking. Is it, is it that French, you know, the, the thinker? You know, this kind of poor guy with a gross headache kind of, this is worshipped. You know, well, some people worship that. Actually, we worship this. The Buddha hasn't got a headache. And the Buddha, I would reckon, knew how to not think. And certainly the, uh, the great disciples living with Ajahn Chah, he, he would, um, he was very, very frank about this. And, and I don't know whether it was just the Western monks or all monks in general, but he used to say that, he said, the trouble with you guys is you know so much about things that you don't know anything. And this is what thinking is. Thinking is an abstraction. Thinking is conceptual activity is an impression. The thought of something is not the same thing as the thing. We can sit up here on top of the hill and think about cleaning the ditch down the lake. That that drain there coming in would be very good if we can clean that ditch. That's a great idea. It will oxygenate the water in the pond and the pond life will be rejuvenated and that's an excellent idea. But thinking about it and the reality of cleaning the ditch are totally different. You're actually cleaning the ditch, you've got blisters on your hands and and you're getting sunburnt and and whatever else is going on. The reality of digging the ditch is one thing. The thought about digging the ditch is something else. Altogether. Now we don't, we don't really, I don't think we get taught this. I'm sure we don't get taught this. Uh, uh, over and over again, I, well, my own experience, but also in conversation with, with other people, other meditators, uh, discussing Dhamma, it's very clear that we are lost in our thoughts. And most people don't know how to not think. They don't know how to move away from thinking. So when we're faced with a crisis, whether it's our own or we're with somebody else's in a crisis, the default is to start thinking, but we, a lot of the time, probably don't even consider the possibility of turning to not thinking, to stillness, and turning away from thinking and experiencing that possibility. And it is a training. The world we live in, Praises, of course, the education praises. The more views and opinions we have, the more ideas we have, the more credits we get. And I can remember um, going to a a conference. This is many years ago now with with Lumpur Sumato. It was, uh, I think, organised by the Recon Trust, a conference called Mystics and Scientists. And Ajahn Sumato gave his normal talk, which. Well, to be honest, it wasn't that interesting. It was, you know, he just heard it all before. And But uh, it was uh, an offering on the contemplative life. But then there was another speaker there, a scientist, and his talk was absolutely riveting. You just really want more and fascinating listening to this this fellow's analysis of, of reality. And 
Ostensibly, this was all about improving the quality of life. This whole conference, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of organization, going into organizing these great speakers to come and talk about things that are going to improve the quality of life. And, and this was all very fascinating. And then, but then what happened over lunch, I remember this interesting situation where Ajahn Sumedha and I were sitting on one side of the table and then the same impressive, uh, very, uh, eloquent scientist was on the other side of the table and, and the canteen lady was pushing the trolley down the aisle with her plates of spaghetti which she was serving out and she was serving the other side of the table first. She wasn't serving our table but the scientist fellow, he wanted his spaghetti now so he just helped himself from the table and the, the canteen lady, she wasn't having that so she pulled it back from him and she says, you've got to wait for your spaghetti. And so here's this fabulous, eloquent scientist and the canteen lady having a fight over a plate of spaghetti. And I thought, well, you know, they're, you know, it's very interesting when you write books about, you lecture on, you talk about, you think about reality. You know, you're sitting on your cushion, you can have the, the wisest ideas about reality. But when it comes to life, we don't necessarily know how to accord with it. And this particularly shows up when we're in a crisis, when we're under pressure. And so uh, I would recommend that, um, preferably before we get into a crisis, that we, we consider this, we pay attention to this. How do we learn to not think? And just to look at the compulsiveness around thinking. Yeah, you know, when you, you say, okay, well, if this is such a good idea, I think I'll, I'll give it 20 minutes a day. I'll sit down and I'll see if I can not think for 20 minutes. And then you realize how compulsive the thinking mind is. And then we've got to start getting really skillful. Of course, we try to stop the thinking mind. Well, we just fuel it and we're thinking about not thinking and thinking about thinking and going round and round in circles. And so we've got to then apply a more skillful application of attention and start to exercise a feeling awareness. An embodied feeling awareness is quite different from a conceptual thinking. And for a lot of people, it's very new and not always immediately easy. And one of the first things we've got to do is to stop fighting the thinking mind. We've got to stop judging the thinking mind, stop taking a position against the thinking mind, expand our field of awareness, and just look at it, our thinking mind. As soon as we've done that, we've already gone beyond, to some degree, the compulsive thinking mind. And for a lot of people, that's a great revelation. So, oh, look at that, there's another reality besides being caught up in this yabba, yabba, yabba that's going on in the mind all the time. It's kind of a tedious thing, keeps us awake at night, it's there when we go to sleep, it's there when we wake up, and, and it's so, on many levels, so inadequate. Now, I don't want to make an enemy of thinking, of course. The capacity to abstract on reality and to speculate, extrapolate is, is amazingly useful. And it's, it's the discriminative intelligence. That's what we do. So it's definitely got its place. But when it's what we automatically turn to and depend on for everything, then I think it becomes, it does, it becomes a problem for us. When I was, um, I feel very fortunate that when I was 
about 18, I came across a Canadian philosopher some of you may have heard of, uh, Marshall McLuhan, uh, famous for introducing the concept of the global village and talking or wrote a book called The Medium is the Message, which people still love and hate, and uh, whether his opinions were relevant or not is something that people are still debating. But what I feel very, very fortunate about was this saying that I remember from Marshall McLuhan, which went into my 18-year-old brain and lodged there, where he says, I am an investigator, I make probes, I have no fixed position. And at 18, that was amazingly important, because at 18 I was busy, I was obsessed with, I was literally obsessed with trying to have the right opinion about things. You know, what should my view be on race relations in New Zealand or the state of New Zealand rugby or whatever important things there were around the time? Actually, to be honest, I wasn't that interested in rugby, but there must be something that I was preoccupied with. Certainly at 18 in particular, at that stage of life, we're very concerned with trying to have the right opinions. But here was this guy, this world-renowned philosopher, telling me you don't have to have a fixed position. I'm an investigator. I make probes. I have no fixed position. And, and that was very, uh, relatively speaking, you know, very liberating. And later on I was uh, rather pleased when, when I uh, ended up becoming a monk in Thailand and, and my teacher, uh, Somdet Nyana Sangwon and Wat Bawon in Bangkok gave me the name Tamawicheo, which means one who investigates Dhamma. I thought that was that was I felt uh, very good about that, and and the spirit of that is well, I personally have confidence in. So long as we default to thinking that there is a right opinion, and and believing that there's a position that I have to take, and that's where my strength is, it's always like a brittle form of strength. We're always going to have to defend it. Whereas if we can allow for the possibility to simply learn to listen to our own views and opinions, what is it that really helps somebody else? If you yourself have ever been in a crisis and you've really been struggling, what is one of the most helpful things that can ever happen? What is it? It's to have somebody listen to you. To have somebody who really knows how to listen, without opinion, without judgment, somebody who really receives us as we are. And similarly, and again it can be a great discovery, to find out that this is also one of the most helpful things we can do for ourselves. And we're allowed to do for ourselves. Now the example of the Buddha, when the Buddha went forth, uh, when he started out on his great spiritual quest, he went forth with the knowledge, with the understanding that he didn't know. The Buddha didn't know the end of suffering. And when we know that we don't know, then that kindles interest. If, as is unfortunately the case for many of us, we get around 
lying to ourselves. Because, <laughs> you know, like at school, you get shamed if you don't know. You know, if you don't know, you, you can't put your arm and say, yes, teacher, I'm in a state of, of awe and wonder, marveling at, at the mystery of life. You can't say that. You have to say, I know. And what was really valued is having strong opinions. And so we grow up, understandably, with this orientation, this perspective that what's good, what's right, what's strong is to have a fixed view, a strong opinion on things. And, and that inclines towards the conceit that I know what I'm doing. We're even lying to ourselves. And we get around, we just get around pretending to ourselves even that we know what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing. So if we come to, if we're fortunate enough to have life hold up a mirror and we get the message, we get the message that we don't know, that's a good place to start. That's a fortunate place to start, to, to know that we don't know. That's where the Buddha started. That's the example of the Buddha. You know, starting out, there's suffering. Is there a way out of it? Don't know. That's not a fault. That's not a failure. That's the truth. And that's really where we can find some ground to stand on. Now, I may not immediately necessarily feel good if we've been addicted to uh, kidding ourselves that we know what we're doing all the time, we've been doing it for many years, then to start to open up and experience uncertainty. Sometimes this is what happens on meditation retreats and start to let go of a few positions and relax and trust and open-hearted, open-minded awareness. You start to realize actually there's not much we know at all. And, and it can be quite scary. So if we're, again, if we have a modicum of humility, we go gradually, we don't have to default to grabbing at a familiar source of security and kidding ourselves that we know. We just, I don't know. So to get a sense of this addiction to certainty, how, how this deluded ego likes to have familiarity, gets very shaky when things are unfamiliar, to really get a sense of that can inspire interest again. So we start to know that's, we're very vulnerable. We're very vulnerable so long as we're addicted to an artificial level of security, having to always prop up. Or as one teacher used to, Vinoba Myokioni, she used to put it as like, the deluded ego is like one of those, those plastic mannequins that you've got to keep blowing to puff it up all the time to keep this thing inflated takes a lot of energy so if our spiritual inquiry if our questioning if our formal practice in our daily life practice takes us in the direction of being able to let go of compulsive thinking and get interested in not thinking and simply listening simply listening listening inwardly Listening outwardly, simply listening. Say, well, how do I do it? Well, they were thinking again. Stop thinking. Just listen. Just, just feel. Feel the question. How do I listen inwardly? 
how do I listen inwardly? And we start thinking about it. No, 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 we don't have to do that. No, no, that's, that's called thinking. We let go of that and come over. How do I listen inwardly? Now, there are books about this and there are views and opinions about this, but we're allowed to make our own investigation. This, and I would recommend it to come off this addiction to the sense of a synthetic feeling of security from telling ourselves stories all the time. It's really dangerous. Uh, the Buddha talked about this, how uh, particularly he, he raised this as a cautioning to, to monks and, and warned them how, how vulnerable monks are to falling out with each other over views and opinions. He pointed out that, uh, that householders, they tend to fall out over which is the best restaurant or where's the best orchestra to go and listen to and, and such concerns or the best place to go on a holiday or something. But since monks don't necessarily have all those luxuries anymore, what do they fall out with? What do they argue over? Views and opinions. Yeah. Get attached to views and opinions. And it's so tempting. I mean, some views are just so attractive. I mean, I, I have some very strong views. Yeah. I think it's uh, for monks to not discourage offering and eating meat, I think, is irresponsible. I have that opinion. But is there a way of having that opinion without becoming obsessed by it? It's not a matter of not having any opinions. You know, that's, that's the reaction against having views and opinions, against thinking. You take a position against it, make an enemy out of views and opinions. That's not what's being encouraged. But rather learning to expand our field of awareness so that we can hear our own views and opinions. When you hear yourself yabbering away about your view and opinion on something or other, you say, how does that feel? Compulsive. Be careful. And simply by looking at it, by pulling back and by looking at it, by feeling our relationship to it, feeling how much we've invested in it. You say, well, you can have that opinion that <clears throat> that not offering, not eating meat in the monastery is a good idea. <clears throat> you can have that opinion, but you don't have to <clears throat> have it in a way whereby when some good-hearted, generous, virtuous person comes to offer meat, that you look at them as some sort of an ogre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the place of women in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Having an opinion about that. Yeah. Or reading Jnanavira. Should you read Jnanavira or should you not read Jnanavira? Is that just somebody who thinks too much and wrote books about it? Or <sighs> Developing the jhanas. What's your opinion about that? <sighs> well, there's lots of stuff you could quote from the scriptures and <clears throat> very impressive teachers around that you could listen to and quote and then have a view, have an opinion about it. Monks, most of us do, have views and opinions. And if we're not mindful in how we have these views and opinions, we fall out with each other. You can even fall out in such a big way that you end up causing a schism in the community. Right back to the time of the Buddha, there were monks falling out with each other over who did what or didn't do what, and they end up having a, splitting the, the community, which uh, is... is Extremely unfortunate. And, well, in the uh, outside the monastery, it goes beyond falling out with each other and actually ending up having wars, often over views and opinions. 
religious views and opinions, environmental views and opinions, economic views and opinions, political views and opinions. So raising this for consideration, partly because I feel if we we just accept what we were given at school, which is the skill to think, and we think that that's enough, well then I fear we're all going to be found very lacking. When we're, when we're faced with a crisis, when we're under pressure, when we're seriously under pressure, and all we can do is think, it's going to be very difficult. But if we know how to not think, if we can turn to, if we value not thinking, I read somewhere that uh, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Charles has, uh, in I think Highfields is his, his house and the farm that he's he's built up and um, opens to the public. He has in the gardens there a meditation hut, which he doesn't open to the public. Everything else is open to the public, but not his meditation hut. And only he goes in there. He goes in there because he values silence. Now, whether you agree or, or like uh, Prince Charles, that's one thing, but certainly I think all of us would agree that here's a man who's under serious pressure. Uh, the future King of England, going to have to take over from the, the most famous woman in the world, uh, loved and respected even by the, the Republicans. Uh, everybody pretty well admires and respects uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And Prince Charles, well, people just tease him. And yet he does have huge responsibilities. How does he handle it? Well, it seems to be, and I imagine that silence is one of the ways that he handles it. He values silence, turning to silence. And now, also in this uh, contemplation on silence, I think we need to be cautious that we don't, well, in fact, I said at the beginning, that we don't make a, an enemy out of thinking. We're not just taking a position against thinking. We're not taking a position against having views and opinions, but we're investigating the way that we have views and opinions. Now, there are meditation techniques which you can contemplate and exercise which stops thinking. And I've been with uh, with people who, you know, they do this, you're sitting talking to them and it's like, where's the person gone? You know, they're, <laughs> they're silent and peaceful. It's like the heart isn't alive. This is a risk. You know, if we've suffered enough from overthinking and we find a technique, a skill which inhibits the thinking, maybe we just then start attaching to silence, attaching to stillness. But that, that's not what we're talking about. You know, the, when we're faced with a crisis like this person who, who wrote a letter asking for some help and how to deal with this misfortune, then what's really called for is, yes, being able to let go of compulsive thinking, value not thinking, but then to settle into the natural warmth of human kindness. 
to settle into the heart, to not remain in our heads with a fixed position, a fixed view that thinking is wrong. Thinking is not wrong. Clinging to not thinking is not it, but a careful, skillful investigation into our relationship to thinking could be helpful. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mayam Namakara Sakuparam Dhamma Sayyam